This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you so much for joining me today as we spin Capote's Coterie for the next few weeks to the High Society Six, the six swans of Truman Capotes that live in the upper echelons of high society, lots of money, lots of fashion, lots of spiderwebs too. Truman Capote is quoted saying, style is what you are. And no one quite had style like the first of our high society six, Babe Paley. Barbara Cushing Mortimer Paley would be all of Babe's names, but Babe is the name that sticks. Babe Paley was the style icon of her day. And after meeting Truman Capote, one of his very, very best friends until Babe was not. So much in this episode. Before we begin today, I do have a spyglass here to give some tremendous thanks to our most recent supporter at patreon.com slash done and done. Susan A., you rock. So grateful for your support. And Amy, I saw the delightful review you left. Thank you for taking the time to do that. So grateful for you both. And so thankful for all of you joining us on this done and done journey. Let us set up the stage for Babe Paley. I want to introduce Babe here from a piece called American Beauty by David Masello. 20th century New York was full of fashion role models, high society ladies whose wardrobes were as stylish as any European aristocrats, whose jewelry was priceless and whose elegance was the result of years of devoted attention. But none had quite the grace of Babe Paley. Babe was the style icon of her day, the leader for a decade of the 10 best dress list and an inductee into the Fashion Hall of Fame, she was a friend and hostess to some of the most famous people in America. Babe was part of a circle alongside supposed wartime spy Gloria Guinness, actress and fashion designer CeCe Guest, Hollywood socialite Slim Keith, Morella Agnelli, wife of Fiat chairman Gianni Agnelli, and Pamela Harriman, daughter-in-law of Winston Churchill, and a future United States ambassador to France. Truman Capote, a friend until he wrote an unflattering, minimally fictionalized expose in 1985 that severed their bond, called these elegant women the swans due to their propensity to group and glide through society like graceful birds. What made Babe stand out from the rest of the swans was her compelling presence. As her friend, jewelry designer Kenneth J. Lane put it, Babe Paley, like the Mona Lisa, had a face that was both memorable and elusive, eerily attractive, and supremely charismatic. She was a product of a time when 
society figures were household names, and when women were schooled to be the epitome of elegance. One look from babe and you melted, Lane says. You fell in love with her the moment her marvelous eyes looked at you. Every waiter in every restaurant fell in love with her. She made you feel like she was in love with you. If she walked into a room, people didn't quite stop breathing altogether, but they held their breath for a minute. She had an aura. Slim Aaron's legendary photographer of the pretty people, was once asked to name his favorite subject. Slim Aaron says, Babe Paley, she was the queen, gracious, utterly charming, what I thought every woman in America wanted to be. If there was a hierarchy among the ladies who lunched at La Cote Basque or the colony and welcomed current or future presidents aboard their private jets, Babe occupied its most rarefied spot. She was surely the most undisheveled person imaginable, wrote George Plimpton, Capote's biographer. So groomed everything perfectly in place, whether she was sitting in a cabana on the Lido or hosting a fancy dinner. Nan Kempner reckons Babe's most enduring feature was that she was never full of herself. This wonderful sort of incompleteness was devastatingly attractive. No one was more enchanted with Babe Paley than Truman Capote. She might not have been his first swan, but she was the most important one to him. Babe's story is fascinating, and her relationship with Truman Capote, fascinating as well. So easy and simple until it gets complicated. Let's investigate. Truman Capote's most cherished swan, Babe Paley, comes into his life right at the death of his mother, Lily Mae Falk. Lily Mae passes away in 1954, and Truman is a little bit vulnerable at this point in his life, and there is no one quite like Babe Paley. How do these two meet? I will let Gerald Clark reveal this bit of the story from his amazing and colossal biography of Truman Capote. Truman met the Paleys in January 1955, just after the opening of his Broadway musical, House of Flowers, when his friends, the Selznicks, David and Jennifer, were invited for a long weekend at the Paley House at Round Hill, Jamaica. This would be David O. Selznick and his second wife, actress Jennifer Jones. Gerald Clark continues, Do you mind if we bring Truman along? David asked Bill Paley. No, of course not, Paley replied. It would be an honor. So early one cold morning, Truman boarded Paley's private plane and was introduced to the golden couple Bill and Babe. Although Bill looked startled when he saw Truman walk into his airplane, the inevitable scarf trailing behind him, he said nothing until they were airborne. Bill then turns to David. You know, when you said Truman, I assumed you meant Harry Truman, 
Who is this? This is Truman Capote, our great American writer, responded David. On such mistakes do fortunes turn. By that time, Truman and Babe were already deep in conversation and had begun a friendship that was to last more than two decades, an attachment that had much of the passion but none of the complications of a sexual entanglement. Babe looked at him and Truman looked at her and they fell instantly in love, said Jennifer Jones. I had a few jealous pangs because up until that time, I had been his best friend. We really did adore each other. By the time we got to Jamaica, not only was Babe absolutely enchanted with him, but so was Bill. Truman was almost adopted by them. The three of them became inseparable. From then on, wherever the Paleys went, Truman often followed. He was a frequent guest at their house in Jamaica and then at a later warm weather house at Lyford Key in the Bahamas. He spent weekends at Kaluna Farm, their 85-acre estate overlooking the Sound of Long Island. He went with them on other people's yachts. He vacationed with them in Europe. Indeed, the three of them traveled the world together and, in Truman's words, quote, did every kind of conceivable thing. I loved them both because they were bright, they were attractive, they were with it in every sort of way. We were a great little trio. I really was their best friend, the best friend they ever had, unquote. That was undoubtedly the case with Babe, who was more protective of him than she probably was of her own children. There's great beauty in his face, Babe said, especially in his eyes just after he takes his specks off. They look so vulnerable. Bill was less effusive, but obviously enjoyed Truman's company. An exception to Truman's observation that the rich or cheap, Bill was exceedingly generous, paying Truman's way on most of their travels and once even offering to buy him a house an offer that Truman wisely but gratefully refused. Most of all, Bill was generous in giving him his wife, in allowing Truman to join them on their travels and in their home. He handed Babe to Truman on a silver platter, said Jack Dunphy, who had been Truman's companion since the late 40s and who knew and liked both Paley's. It wasn't the Cushing family in Boston that made her. It was Bill. She would have been nothing if she hadn't married him, and Truman wouldn't have had too much to do with her either. Whether he admitted it or not, he was attracted to money and power. Babe and her sister, Minnie Fosberg, gave him a graduate degree in the manners and mores of the cultured rich. Truman had a passion to identify with quality, said Oliver Smith. He eagerly wanted to know how you behave in society, and Mrs. Paley and Mrs. Fosberg educated him. They taught him about decoration, painting, and all the other things that are the intelligent result of great wealth. Truman willingly admitted as much. Babe taught me a lot of things, he said. How to look at a room, for instance. She showed me how to decorate by throwing things together 
expensive things with cheap things from the dime store. She showed me that a room could be fun and personal, and that's the way I've decorated ever since. I taught her a lot of things, too, such as how to read and how to think. Like many women of her class and generation, Babe ended her formal training with secondary school, just as he had. And the world of books was, by and large, terra incognita to her. Truman opened up avenues for her, she said, adding that he had even made her read Proust, quote-unquote, the whole thing. To Truman, Babe represented the ultimate in style. She was the genuine article. I was madly in love with her, he said. I just thought she was absolutely fantastic. She was one of the two or three great obsessions of my life. She was the only person in my whole life that I liked everything about. I consider her one of the three greatest beauties in the world, the other two being Gloria Guinness and Garbo. But babe, I think she was the most beautiful. She was, in fact, the most beautiful woman of the 20th century, with the single exception of Gloria, who was sort of neck and neck with her. She was also the most chic woman I've ever known. When I first saw her, I thought that I had never seen anyone more perfect. Her posture, the way she held her head, the way she moved. She was the most important person in my life, and I was the most important person in hers. I was her one real friend, the one real relationship she ever had. We were like lovers. She loved me and I loved her. The only person I was ever truly in love with was her. She once joked to her analyst and said that she loved me more than anyone else, more than Bill or her children, and he thought she should have an affair with me. It was one of those jokes that wasn't actually a joke. He was right. We had a perfect rapport. We had an understanding. If I suspected she was feeling bad about something, no matter what time of the year it was, I would send her lilies of the valley without any note. She would do the same for me. She once told me that she bought her funeral plot on Long Island and that there was a place for me because she wanted me to be buried beside her. I was her sounding board and the only one who really knew her. She always said to me, there's only one person in the world who could hurt me, really hurt me, and that's you. You could do something. I don't know what it would be, but I know that you're the one person in the world that could ever really, really hurt me. Beautiful babe, Truman discovered, was human after all, and lonely on the pedestal of which her looks and breeding had placed her. Perhaps more than any of the other swans, Babe needed a friend like Truman, someone with whom she could relax and who in turn would tell her time and time again that she was a perfect person. Truman said she had an icy exterior but once you got behind that fine enamel outside, she was very warm and very young. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. 
Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous. A podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number. Thousands of people try to call talk to one of them they stay anonymous i can't hang up that's all the rules i never know what's going to happen we get serious ones i've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison i've talked to people who survived mass shootings crazy funny ones i talked to a guy with a goose laugh somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends i never know what's going to happen it's a great show subscribe today beautiful anonymous let's go ahead and dive into the life of the infamous and immortal high society swan babe paley Barbara Cushing was the youngest child born to Kate and Harvey Cushing in Boston, Massachusetts. Barbara's birthday was July 5th, 1915, and Barbara gets her name early in life being the youngest of the Cushing children of Babe. Harvey Cushing, Babe's father, was an early pioneer of brain surgery, and His future bride and mother of babe, Kate Crowell from Cleveland, will wait a very, very long 10 years to marry Harvey Cushing. Harvey was busy completing his education and building a practice. And even when Kate and Harvey marry, Harvey is rarely home. Kate Cushing will make it her goal to make a beautiful home and a beautiful family, a model of perfection for Harvey and to the outside world. Five children do follow for Harvey and Kate, two boys and three girls, but friends, I need to let you know that the three girls they have are the stars of the show. The three Cushing daughters were absolutely raised to make good marriages and be the ideal trophy wives. Kate Cushing would not be disappointed As the Cushing sisters, holy cats, they make some fantastic marriages. The late Millicent Fenwick, a friend of Babe's and New Jersey Congresswoman, will remark about the Cushing sisters. Each of the girls, and especially Babe, entered the world convinced that they were the most attractive young women in the world, combining beauty and brains. Babe was unquestionably the most beautiful of the Cushing sisters. Babe also had a warm and generous nature. The thing, though, with Babe, she was not her mother Kate's favorite. That would be Betsy, the middle daughter. Betsy Cushing was most like her mother and also the most obedient to her mother's plans that Kate has in the world for her daughters. And while all three Cushing sisters stayed close throughout their lives, Babe and Minnie had an especially close bond. 1930 is a banner year for the Cushing sisters. Have a wedding alert here. Betsy will marry. She's the first to marry, and Betsy does not go small in this marriage. Betsy will marry for the first time to James Roosevelt, the eldest son of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was still then governor of New York State, soon to be president. 
if Eleanor Roosevelt is away from the White House for any particular important event, it is Betsy Cushing Roosevelt that will stand in for Eleanor as hostess. Kind of a big deal. Babe, though, is the youngest. Babe, just three years later, will graduate from the Westover School in Connecticut in 1933. She will make her official debut into society the following year, and with Babe's respected family, her outstanding beauty, and her kind nature, there's no doubt that Babe will have her pick of marriage proposals. Marietta Peabody Tree, childhood friend of Babe's and socialite, says about her, She was the most glamorous of my generation, but she was terribly nice, too to younger, awkward, and shy girls like myself. Let me fix your shoulder strap, she would say. Babe thoroughly enjoyed making the rounds of coming out parties in Boston and in New York. In 1934, while riding home from a Long Island party with friends, Babe was in a very serious car accident. This is simply terrible. Babe was seriously injured and her beautiful face was nearly destroyed. Babe's injuries rendered her almost unrecognizable, and most of her teeth had been knocked out as well. Kate Cushing, her mother, also known as Gogsy, that was the nickname that the family had for Kate. Poor Gogsy is dismayed by the thought that Babe has lost all of her beauty. Babe's father, though, remember, a brain surgeon high up in the medical community, Harvey Cushing, jumps into action and calls upon all of his medical connections to arrange months of reconstructive surgeries for Babe. When it was all said and done, Babe emerged as stunning as ever, although she would have to wear false teeth for the rest of her life. Although Babe had two wonderfully successful debutante seasons, Babe is not exactly a willing partner in her mom's plans quite yet. Babe does not accept any proposals from the many, many eligible bachelors that pursue her. In fact, Babe's going to do exactly the opposite. She's going to move to New York and get a job at Glamour Magazine to eventually move to Vogue as a fashion editor. Now, Mama Kate, Gogsy, was pretty concerned about Babe's marital prospects. As Babe is approaching the age of horror of all horrors, 25, and still unmarried. More troubling even to Gogsy was that Babe seemed way more interested in her career as a fashion editor than in making a suitable marriage to a wealthy, socially connected, and hopefully aristocratic man. During this time, a burdened family member... And I'll connect this here. Babe's oldest daughter, Amanda, will marry into the Burden family. This Burden family member said, Babe lived at the St. Regis occasionally while working at Vogue and lived with Russian-American socialite Sergei Obolensky quite openly. When asked how the Cushing family permitted this behavior, (laughs) the family member said, Morality is for the middle classes. Condé Nast himself had hired Babe. In those days when a young, bright socialite didn't quite know what to do with herself before marriage, Condé Nast served as sort of a finishing school for them. 
according to Alexander Lieberman, the current editorial director of Condé Nast. During this time, Babe will befriend many powerful and glamorous women. Diana Vreeland, Susan Mary Alsup, Millicent Fenwick, Connie Bradley, Muriel Maxwell, and Sally Kirkland. These wealthy debutantes worked for almost nothing, monetarily at least, which wasn't too much of a problem since they were already very wealthy. They worked at Condé Nast for the glamour, for the connections with fabulous people, for the beautiful clothing, and for the amazing social functions. By the end of the 1930s, though, Gogsy isn't happy. Betsy and Jimmy Roosevelt have divorced. Betsy will marry again in 1942 to John Hay Whitney, one of those Whitneys, and Gogsy's pleased with this one. But, good Lord, Kate Cushing really doesn't mess around too much in the marriage market. If we get to the late 1930s, at this point, none of her children, none of her daughters, the fabulous Cushing sisters, were married. And this is simply just not acceptable for Gogsy. And she is going to turn the dial up on the pressure for all three of her daughters to find appropriate husbands. Babe, despite loving her time at Vogue, will give in to Gogsy and announce her engagement on September the 6th, 1942, Stanley Grafton Mortimer Jr. Let's talk about old Stanley. He was a wealthy and New York socialite a graduate of St. Mark's and Harvard. Stanley was the grandson of one of the founders of Standard Oil and a descendant of John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the United States. In addition to all of this impeccable breeding, Stanley Mortimer was extremely handsome. Want you to remember the date of that engagement, September the 6th, 1940, Babe and Stanley were married September 21st, 1940, a scant, what, two and a half weeks later at St. Luke's Protestant Episcopal Church. The wedding was a relatively private affair. Sadly, Babe's father, Harvey Cushing, had died before her wedding, so Babe's brother, Henry, will walk her down the aisle. The reception was held at Gogsy's summer home in East Hampton. When Babe throws her bridal bouquet, her sister Minnie caught that bouquet, and apparently this worked wonders for Minnie. That little bridal tradition for six days later, Minnie, holy cats, will get married. Maybe not surprisingly, though, see, Minnie had been the longtime mistress of William Vincent Astor, one of those Astors, and the two... We'll marry soon enough, right, just after Babe and Stanley's wedding, but the problem is that William Vincent Astor has to divorce his lesbian wife of about two and a half decades first. Minnie is a whole scene, (laughs) y'all. The Cushing sisters really are a fascinating story. We will follow up on their whole arc on Not Done Yet in short order. Minnie and... William Vincent Astor do marry, but they are going to divorce in 1953. But in order to do so, a little bit of a spider web, William Vincent Astor wants Minnie to replace Minnie herself as a wife. (laughs) 
Minnie Fosberg <laughs> to divorce William Astor will find a new wife for him. That lady's name is Brooke Astor, legendary socialite. We're going to be talking about Brooke Astor too in our Done and Done episodes soon enough. Again, lots of spider webs. I don't want to get too far from the story of Babe Paley here, though. Let's get back to Babe and her new husband, Stanley Mortimer Jr. See, Stanley comes from the most exclusive wasp old money pedigree. Much of his inheritance and wealth was in trust funds with permitted but monitored allowances. He's got cash, but it's annuitized cash, right? So the trust fund that Mortimer has allows for Babe's newly married life to be very comfortable, but not quite at the level of extravagance that Babe or Gogsy, her mother, had hoped for. However, the Mortimer prestige and social standing helped to make up for the lack of excessive wealth. Stanley and Babe frequently visit the Mortimer family at their Tuxedo Park estate and attend elite social gatherings at the exclusive Tuxedo Club. Phil and Stanley, the young married couple, they live at a triplex apartment at 225 East 51st Street in Manhattan. This is not quite the same level of luxury as Tuxedo Park, but don't be fooled, it's still a very privileged and affluent lifestyle. Babe will continue to work at Vogue during the first year of her marriage. She will take temporary leave when she becomes pregnant. Stanley, her husband, will enlist in the Navy after the United States enters World War II. He was sent to the Naval Training Center in Pensacola, Florida, and Babe really does try to live with him there, but is quite frankly unable to tolerate the lifestyle for too long and soon returns to New York City and her nice high fashion job at Vogue. After Stanley completes his pilot training, he was stationed in the South Pacific. In 1942, Babe gives birth to her first child, a son named Stanley Grafton Mortimer III. This baby was called Tony. The following year, Stanley and Babe do welcome a daughter, Amanda J. Mortimer. With the help of staff and nannies, Babe was still able to enjoy Manhattan's social life while her husband was stationed in the South Pacific. Babe was a centerpiece of cafe society during that time, and many men will make themselves available to Babe to escort her helpfully during her husband's absence. Even before her husband returns, in 1945, Babe had decided that she wanted a divorce. Her husband's absence had already been a difficult thing for the couple to endure, and Stanley had begun drinking heavily to boot. The divorce was relatively amicable with Babe retaining custody of the two children. The Mortimer family will provide a generous trust fund to care for the two children and Stanley Mortimer had visitation and vacation rights for the children. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree here. Babe is definitely on the market for a second and wealthier husband. In the meantime, Babe will continue working at Vogue, caring for her children, and of course, enjoying a glamorous social life. 
Gogsy <laughs> to the rescue. Kate Cushing, again, always takes husband hunting very, very seriously. Gogsy will make lists of potential suitors with all of their qualifications for Babe to study. And Babe, she's no fool. She's very calculated about finding the right husband that will meet her specific needs. As Minnie, her sister, is now finally married to William Vincent Astor, and Betsy is now married to John Hay Whitney. Y'all, these are members of two of the wealthiest and most prestigious families in the country. The Astors and the Whitneys? Come on! Babe, though, isn't really interested in competing with her sisters on that level. Babe wants to find a husband with wealth, of course. Maybe even more wealth than the Astors or the Whitneys have. But Babe is also looking for a husband who needs her social cachet. Someone who wants to be accepted into a level of society that Babe can make accessible to him. She wants to be the key to unlock the door for her new husband in return for vast wealth. To find this man, Babe is going to look for someone with new money, the nouveau riche, so to speak, and there is no more perfect candidate than William S. Paley. Now, Bill Paley had turned CBS from a small, fledgling radio network into the powerful radio and television network CBS becomes. Bill has a keen eye for spotting talent and knowing what the American public wants. Bill Paley is credited with making Frank Sinatra a household name. Paley creates many of the classic television shows of that time. And Bill is enormously wealthy and enormously powerful, but he also lacks the social prestige and stature that Babe could ultimately bring to him. The fact that Bill was Jewish will still bar him from membership at many of the esteemed social clubs of New York and Long Island. Babe, on the other hand, is one of the most glamorous and respected blue-blooded women in the country, and her perpetual best dress list status was appealing to Bill Paley. Bill has a lot of strikes against him, according to Kate Cushing. <laughs> Let's round out the list. Gogsy's mad. The two, Bill and Babe, are obviously having an illicit relationship. Bill Paley's not even divorced. He was new money. He's also Jewish. And Gogsy's a hard, firm no. However, when Minnie and Betsy, her two daughters, decide to let Mama know the extent of Bill Paley's wealth, nah, Mama let up a little bit and relented. In 1947, Bill Paley will give his first wife, Dorothy, $1.5 million in their divorce settlement. This amount translates to roughly $18 million in today's money. That divorce was prompted by the newspaper publishing a suicide note of a former fling of Bill's. A lot of spiderwebs here before Dorothy married Bill Paley all those years ago. Dorothy was married before to John Randolph Hearst, son of William Randolph Hearst. 
a little side adjacent story. The spiderwebs of Dorothy Paley are coming up as well in a bonus episode on Patreon. There's a lot of follow-up in this story, but I'm really just trying to get through Babe here. Okay, five days after Bill, Paley, and Dorothy divorce, Babe and Bill were married. This is July 28th, 1947. They are married at the estate of Jock Whitney. This is Babe's brother-in-law. Babe and Bill do honeymoon in Europe. And when they return, Babe will quit her job finally at Vogue. And the couple settles into married life, commuting between their apartment in the St. Regis Hotel and Kaluna Farm in Manhasset. Bill and Babe entertain often and extravagantly. The apartment at the St. Regis was too small to entertain. They would not move into their 20-room duplex on Fifth Avenue until 1965. So at this time, instead of entertaining in their small apartment, they would entertain in the grand public rooms at the St. Regis. Bill and Babe do have their son, William Billy Cushing Paley. He was born March 30th, 1948. A second child follows Kate, who was born in 1950. Like a lot of wealthy high society couples of the time, Bill and Babe spend very little time with their children. The apartment in the city was purposefully too small for the kids to stay there with them. And even when they were all at Kaluna Farm with the kids, the children are regulated to a children's cottage. This is a separate five-bedroom house with their own live-in cook, nanny, and servants' rooms. It's difficult to say at this time when her children were young if Babe ever felt the desire to play a more consistent or nurturing role with them. Even if she wanted to, it would be darn near impossible because Bill puts constant demands on Babe. And Babe will always, always, always put Bill's wants and preferences first. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, I talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. And as trophy wives go, Babe was a fabulous showpiece. She's a jewel. She's almost a purchase possession, and it's pretty clear that Babe knows the arrangement. You could say Babe traded her free will, her choices, her preferences, and voice for the lifestyle that Bill Paley provides to her. But just as Gogsy trained her daughters to do, Babe devotes herself entirely to creating her husband's version of the perfect life. Beginning in the year 1950, Bill Paley will set up a trust fund for Babe. This trust fund is made up of CBS stock and it will provide his wife with an annual income of her own to spend on herself and her wardrobe. By 1977, 
Babe's trust fund yielded about $160,000 a year, which is approximately $700,000 a year in today's money. Now, don't worry. I mean, what? $160,000? It doesn't seem like it's going to go real far if you're dealing in real jewels, but Babe doesn't use that money for any real jewelry, only costume jewelry. Bill will buy her all the real jewels that she needs. And Babe has a considerable collection. They are stored safely in bank vaults. And when Babe decides, it's just amazing, when she wants to wear a piece from the vault, her secretary and a secretary from CBS would meet at the bank and both would sign for the jewelry. They would ride back together in a CBS limousine to the Paley apartment to deliver the desired pieces. Quite a life, I guess, if you can get it. Now, the thing to know is the Paleys were the most prestigious and socially desirable couple in New York. Bill has the money. Babe has the class, the cachet, the connections. And these two cultivate their image very carefully. Each summer, Bill and Babe would spend a month on Lowell and Gloria Guinness's yacht in the Mediterranean. The Paley's homes were decorated by the most famous designers of the time, including Sister Parrish and Billy Baldwin. The Paley's buy expensive art and antiques from all corners of the world. And in addition to their New York apartment, Kaluna Farm, they'll also acquire vacation homes in Jamaica and a home in Squam Lake, New Hampshire. And Babe was the ultimate trophy wife, and her style was imitated everywhere. I can't tell you how influential Babe is on society itself, on high fashion. Once she gets warm on her way to lunch, so Babe just takes her scarf off and ties it to the side of her handbag. People pay attention to Babe. Within just a few weeks, this scarf-on-the-handbag look was being copied everywhere. Babe was on the best dress list for 14 years straight. 13 of those years, Babe was number one on the best dress list. Ultimately, she is retired from yearly competition when she was named to the Hall of Fame in 1958. With such a successful wife, it's no surprise that Bill Paley's ego was enormous. It was enormous before he met Babe. It will grow more enormous after he meets and marries Babe. But the thing I want you to know about Bill is his desire for control was profound. Also, his philandering is an open secret. He cheats a lot on Babe. But even with all of these things, it wasn't until Babe gets seriously ill at the end of her life that anyone ever, ever, ever hears her say a critical word about her husband. Babe was completely devoted to him as well as their image as a couple. It is the image of Bill and Babe as a couple that to Babe, nothing is more important. Even though Babe has four children and two stepchildren, she is distant with all of them. As many children are in extremely wealthy families, Babe's kids 
were primarily cared for by nannies, then sent away to boarding schools only to see their parents on some weekends or vacations. The family unit of parent and child, not terribly strong here. Babe's oldest daughter, Amanda, said about growing up, it was a strange household, so fragmented and wacky. Our parents weren't there, and when they came, we were all clamoring for attention. There was no bonding among the kids. We were all looking out for ourselves. Babe will nurture one relationship, though. We heard Truman talk about it earlier. I was more important to her than her own children. Perhaps. Babe was Truman's favorite swan. Again, Truman was one of the only people that Babe confided in. Babe really does keep most people, including her good friends, at somewhat of a distance. She's very aloof. It is the presentation of Babe that matters. However, with Truman, Babe lets her guard down. Truman, for his part, is in awe of Babe, her elegance, her beauty, and her style. Again, remember the Paley's kind of adopt Truman, so he's able to spend all kinds of time with Babe, in addition to the other swans, but Truman, being gay, is zero threat to their husbands. Being openly and conspicuously homosexual in a time when that was kind of uncommon allowed the swans to let Truman into their private world. Truman was at the Paley's homes much of the time, vacations with them frequently. Truman infiltrates this world. And to be fair, the relationship between Babe and Truman was mutually beneficial. Truman shows her an intellectual world that she'd never been part of. Babe begins reading and being interested in things that she was just previously unaware of. Truman, on the other hand, becomes a third sister for Babe. He's endlessly entertaining with his witty conversation and bitchy gossip. They trade secrets, they travel, they shop, they gossip. They do everything together. Bill Paley, for his part, also has a special relationship with Truman. They get along, too. And everything goes swimmingly, right, for the longest time. Until the mid-1970s when Lakote Basque, 1965, the nastiest piece of fiction Romano Clay in the world, was published in Esquire magazine. When Lacote Basque 1965 is published, Babe is devastated. She reads the excerpt. Babe calls her good friend Slim Keith. Tells Slim Keith to go get the Esquire magazine. Call me back as soon as you've read it. Babe Paley is horrified, horrified that Truman has betrayed her. He shared her confidences, even if he changed names doing it. Again, very thinly disguised. Truman writes about Bill Paley's infidelity. It's nasty, nasty, nasty stuff. And Babe is not the only one he writes about in this nasty, nasty fiction. And it's really unclear if Truman thought his swans were just too stupid, too dumb to recognize themselves through this 
very thinly disguised work of fiction, or maybe Truman thought his swans just wouldn't care. There's also one theory that floats about that Truman, knowing Babe by 1975 was dying, decides to take a stand for Babe and outs Bill Paley's adultery as revenge, expecting Babe to be grateful. But again, there's nothing more important than the preservation of the look to Bill and Babe. Whatever Truman's feelings or motivations were prior to publishing La Cote Basque 1965, it is fair to say that Truman does not expect the reaction he gets, and that reaction will change his life forever and most assuredly lead Truman on the downslide of his last decade. In later interviews, Truman would say that he was shocked that anybody would be the least bit surprised to have their private and extremely dirty laundry aired by him because, after all, everybody knows that Truman's a writer and writers use the material that they have. CZ Guest, future Swan episode, is the only one of the High Society Six that does not completely cut Truman out of their lives. After Lacote Basque 1965 was published, Truman was shunned by all of the glittering, beautiful people that he had previously been spending time with 20 years on their yachts, in their mansions, at their seaside retreats, and flying on their private jets. Truman will still have some friends. Joanne Carson, for example, one-time wife of Johnny Carson will remain Truman's close friend until his death. Babe's older sister, Minnie, will ironically still see Truman socially as Truman will become a fixture on the party scene of New York City in the 1970s, frequently hanging out at Studio 54. However, it is fair to say by the mid-70s and the publication of the Esquire pieces, that Truman's glamorous days with the elite and the jet set were done. Truman Capote once said Babe Paley only had one flaw. She was perfect. Otherwise, she was perfect. After Lacote Basque 1965, Babe Paley never spoke to Truman Capote again. Even when Babe was in her last days, she refused to see him. Babe Paley was a lifelong heavy smoker. Babe would smoke more than two packs of L&Ms a day, and a small tumor was discovered on one of her lungs in early January 1974. Babe underwent surgery to remove one-third of that diseased lung. The tumor was determined to be malignant, but the doctors and the Paleys were very hopeful that the surgery had cured the cancer. With enough money and connections to have access to the most groundbreaking medical treatments, everybody believes that Babe would beat the cancer. After her initial recovery, Babe continues entertaining and keeping her schedule with only small cutbacks. However, in the spring of 1975, another tumor was found and the remaining part of Babe's lung had to be removed. Babe will slow down considerably after this surgery. She doesn't travel as often. Naturally, she needs much more rest, and Babe will drastically cut back her social engagements. 
By 1976 and early 1977, it does appear as though Babe's cancer had stabilized and she was in very good spirits. However, by the fall of 1977, Babe's cancer had spread, and this time there was no denying that Babe was dying. Babe stayed glamorous, though, even while spending a great deal of time in her bed. Babe does her makeup every day. She wears Valentino knit loungewear. She always makes sure that her chiffon scarf was beautifully wrapped around her head like a turban. Now, Babe, being estranged, not very close to her children, her daughter, Amanda Burden, will say, for a long time, she didn't have the desire to see me. It's a very weird thing to have your mother not want to see you. But that changed in the last three months of her life. She waited for my visits. She would walk with me. Those moments were terrific for me. Tony, her son that Babe had always really been the closest to, would stop by every morning on his way to work and every evening on his way home. Babe's stepchildren, Hillary and Jeffrey, and her younger son, Billy, also will start visiting Babe after realizing how serious her condition was and how little time she had left. Babe's youngest daughter, Kate, though, will still refuse to visit her mother. Kate told her family she would only come when Babe was in her last few hours. At Christmas 1977, Bill and Babe took their last vacation. Babe was extremely weak and constantly fatigued. Upon their return, Babe meticulously goes through her vast collection of jewelry and assigns whom each piece would be given to once she passed away. By early 1978, Babe had become considerably worse. As she got closer to her death, Babe does become more openly hostile towards Bill. It seemed that all those years of sacrificing her own will, her own ideas, and her own opinions to make the perfect life for her husband had caused Babe to be a little resentful, and here she'll let out her pent-up frustration. Babe will begin referring to Bill as Paley and would criticize him publicly. Babe even once called CBS and asked what that old SOB was doing. By Easter of 1978, Babe could not leave her bed. She needed oxygen and spent most of her time sleeping. In the month of June, Babe asked to make one last trip to Coluna Farm. Her family, excepting Kate, all went with her. They drove her around the grounds in a golf cart, letting her look at all the beautiful gardens one last time. During her last week, Babe Paley called her family and friends to say goodbye. On July 5th, her daughter Kate was called in to see her mother before she died. Babe woke briefly and recognized that Kate was there. Even on Babe's very last day and with a shaky hand, Babe insisted she put her makeup on. Babe Paley passed away in a beautiful lace bed jacket, chiffon turban, and a face full of makeup on July 6, 1978. A few days later, 400 mourners paid their respects to Babe at Christ Episcopal Church in Manhasset. Shortly afterward, those mourners enjoyed champagne on silver trays and Babe's favorite wine, 
during a luncheon at Coluna that Babe had perfectly planned and orchestrated during the last year of her life. Many of the high-profile socialites mourning Babe that very same day don't waste any time vying to become the next Mrs. William S. Paley, and although Bill Paley enjoys the company of many, many ladies after Babe's death, Bill would never marry again. It would be very challenging to compete with Babe Paley, Truman's best and most favored high society swan. What a story, what a life, Babe Paley. I do want to conclude and go back to Truman Capote's piece, A Gathering of Swans, written for Harper's Bazaar in 1959, in this one particular paragraph, quoting Capote, With these two swans adrift on these pages appears a signet, a fledgling of promise, who may one day lead the flock. However, as is generally conceded, a beautiful girl of twelve or twenty, while she may merit attention, does not deserve admiration. Reserve that laurel for decades hence, when, if she has kept buoyant the weight of her gifts, been faithful to the vows a swan must, she will have earned an audience all kneeling. For her achievement represents discipline, has required the patience of a hippopotamus, the objectivity of a physician combined with the involvement of an artist, one whose sole creation is her perishable self. Moreover, the area of accomplishment must extend much beyond the external. Holy cats, friends, that's Babe Paley. (laughs) She did receive that laurel and earned an audience all kneeling. So much admiration during her life and beyond. Oh, Babe Paley. Investigators, thank you so much for tuning in to Babe's story today, the first of our High Society Six. We will be back on Wednesday this week here on the main feed with another of our High Society Six. Stay tuned, everybody, for that one on this week's Double Drop of Swans. Until we meet again Wednesday, y'all, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.